Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's, uh, let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for days, even like today, that's cold and chilly, and yet we get to come together, we get to experience the warmth of, of fellowship with one another, the warmth of your spirit moving and speaking to us, and as we're here today, and, and for those who are watching online, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us by your spirit. I pray that you would inform us as to the ways that we should go and, and the practices that we should engage in, and I pray that we would do all this knowing that we are so deeply loved by you. And I pray that this Christmas, this Advent season, uh, we would just once again enter into the wonder and the awe of knowing that you know what it is like to be us, because you became like us. And so, Lord, I pray we don't lose that, that sense of awe and wonder. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So... We've been working our way through a series uh, going back to Isaiah's prophecy of the four titles, the four names of this child, this Savior, this Messiah that's going to be born to us. And one of those titles, of course, is Prince of Peace. And so around the Christmas season, you hear a lot of talk about peace on earth, right? You can buy little Christmas cards and it says peace on earth and it's got this idyllic scene of like a nice little village in America somewhere, right? And, the, and it's just snow gently falling and, and peace on earth is sort of something that we enter into at this time of the year. But anyone who watches even the tiniest bit of news will agree that peace on earth uh, has not yet come and is desperately needed. In the past few years, there's been times when I've been watching news clips or, or reading articles in the newspaper that have actually been moved to tears over the violence and the chaos of our world. And I've prayed over this violence and, and this chaos, and, and what moves me most is when you hear or you see children suffering. You know, I just imagine being a parent in some of those situations, being helpless to provide the basic needs for my child or helpless to protect my child from violence. I remember the time that it really stood out to me it was a few years ago when the Syrian refugee crisis was at its peak, and it just really moved me to tears. You know, I see something like that. That was in a news clip from BBC, right? That's, you know, about the age, a little bit younger than Connor, right? He just, just got out of a bomb blast out in Syria, right? And, and I, that actually image, that caused me to weep. I thought, how, I can't quite imagine children having to go through that type of thing. Or I see parents carrying their wounded children out of bombed out buildings, right? And I can't even quite imagine what that would be like, right? I'm carrying my child in my arms. My home is destroyed. Where am I going to go? Or I see, you know, dads holding their children after fleeing their home, right? Because there's nowhere to go back to. And, and you can see the dad in this next picture and, you know, the expression on his face. He's like, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? What are we going to eat? And I think about myself in that situation. And this is the reality, not just for a handful of people, but for millions, actually. We have a refugee crisis. And it's still ongoing, and so when you, and you know, I put these images up because I think sometimes we can be really sheltered from what is going on in the world. And we can kind of embrace this, yeah, oh, it's wonderful, Christmas is this wonderful time of peace on earth, and, and I love it, but at the same time, I, I hold this tension because I go around the world, there are people right now in refugee camps who've been there for years who don't know where they're going to go, who have no homes to go back to, you know, they can't go back and rebuild because it's just going to get bombed again. Or they're going to get killed if they go back. So what do you do? 
You know, and over this last year, we've seen Ukrainian cities that are almost completely destroyed, civilians being killed or imprisoned. There's a school shooting in Uvalde a few months ago, 19 children and two teachers killed. A record of genocide right now of the Uyghur people by the Chinese government. There's the ongoing persecution of the Rohingya people by the Burmese military. And that's just scratching the surface of the violence and the oppression that's going on in the world. That's just a, a small portion of what's going on. You can go even deeper and you go into individual households and some of the, the violence and the, and the terror that people experience right in their own homes. So, you know, the point I make is there's really no end to the amount of violence happening around the world. And I've preached other times about how Jesus is a peacemaker, or Jesus brings peace. And every time I preach on this, I can always find counterexamples of, of where there is war and violence and death and destruction. And yet we're coming in today to this prophecy. Isaiah says, this child to be born to us will be called the Prince of Peace. And yet the world is very chaotic. And if we back up in this prophecy, if we read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, we see that Isaiah says that this Prince of Peace is going to break the rod of the oppressor. He says that every blood-soaked garment worn in war will be rolled up and be burnt for fuel. There's this end to war and violence that will last forever. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will rule with justice and righteousness and cause everyone under his rule to reign and rule and flourish with him. But I was thinking about this, because we are 2,000 years removed from the birth and the life of Jesus, and war has not ended. In fact, sometimes, depending on what's going on in the world, it seems that peace is further now than ever. So, so you ask the question, did Jesus, the Prince of Peace, fail in his mission to bring peace? Or is, did Isaiah get the prophecy wrong? We could say not at all. Because Isaiah actually calls us, you know, the way prophecy works is sometimes it's for the immediate and it's also for the future and it's also for another future and it's all things together. We go, which one is it? It's like, it's all of them. It's now, it's later, and it's later to come. It, it kind of encapsulates the whole of the timeline. And so Isaiah is actually asking us to look, you know, in some sense, beyond the birth of Jesus, beyond the life of Jesus. And in this title, we see a glimpse of what will be when Jesus comes again to set the world right. And we see a vision of the world set right in Revelation 21. And it's actually sort of a return to the Garden of Eden in a sense. But in Revelation 21 it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. So there's this vision of the coming king who will one day put all of this right. And this peace that is talked about here is shalom peace. So the title in the Isaiah prophecy that we translate prince of peace in, in English in the Hebrew is sar shalom. And Jesus not only brings peace, he not only brings shalom, but he is shalom. You go, well, what is shalom? What is, what is it? Okay, we translate it peace, but... But our word peace or our understanding of peace is often too limited to understand true shalom. Shalom is this all-encompassing peace. When we speak about peace in our culture, we often kind of mean, you know, kind of a psychological comfort, like our minds are at peace or our circumstances are good. We have no worries on the horizon, so we feel at peace. But shalom is not about, you know, us feeling at peace. Shalom, the peace of God, means true flourishing, fulfillment, and well-being. Shalom is a word that means well-being in all aspects of life. 
physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. It's that Revelation 21 vision. There is no sorrow, there's no tears, there's no crying, there's no pain. All is well. This, this kind of comprehensive shalom piece is what the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah were envisioning for the future, what God would do. One author puts it like this. He says, These prophets of old dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out, rough places made plain, the foolish would be made wise and the wise made humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, and people would go to sleep without weapons on their laps. People would work together in peace and work to fruitful effect. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all nature and all humans would look to God, walk with God, lean toward God, and delight in God together. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets meant by shalom. So that's shalom peace. That's the world put right. It's the kind of peace that only the Prince of Peace will bring. And according to Isaiah's prophecy, the Prince of Peace accomplishes this peace in two ways. One way, if you continue reading in the Isaiah 9 prophecies, there is an end to all war, an end to all violence and conflict between humans. Secondly, the Prince of Peace will bring peace between rebellious humanity and God and commission his followers to be people of peace and to be peacemakers in a violent world. And that's sort of where we're at. There's this future, future vision of the coming king who puts all things right, that God will dwell with his people. And then there's this other vision that Jesus came to make peace between God and man. And we now, as sons, of, sons and daughters of God, get to be peacemakers in a violent and chaotic world. And so we believe that this process of peacemaking began at the birth of Jesus and continues until Jesus comes again. And the church, the followers of Jesus, we are commissioned to advance the kingdom of heaven into the domain of darkness. And so that means it's our task, empowered and led by the Holy Spirit, to bring peace to bring shalom wherever possible in this dark world. Now, we're not going to complete this task before Christ comes again, but we are to be peacemakers. Do you remember the Beatitudes? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we're going to explore our role as peacemakers more at the end of the sermon. But first, it's crucial to understand that we are peacemakers because we are at peace with God. And so although we have to wait for shalom, peace to come in its fullness, we can have peace with God right now through Jesus, the Prince of Peace. The immediate effect of Jesus was bringing peace between God and humanity. Jesus reconciled rebellious humanity back to relationship with their creator. Because the spiritual truth is that in our sin, we are not free as we might think we are, but we are actually, Paul says, slaves to our desires. And Jesus comes and he sets us free and he brings us peace when we're bound to our sin, we're enemies of God. That's our condition apart from the saving grace found in Jesus. The Bible actually says that, you know, in your, in your flesh desires, you're, at, you're an enemy of God. The Bible says that in our sin, we're hostile towards God. Paul says it this way. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And so whether people are fully aware of it or not, and, and often they aren't aware of it, there is an internal hostility towards God in every human heart. And because of that, we instinctively suppress the truth about God. Now, it's not that anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is out there actively saying, I hate God and I can't stand the thought of God. I mean, you're always going to find a few people out there who are kind of militantly, you know, anti-God. 
But the vast majority of people aren't out there, you know, screaming obscenities at God and blaspheming his name all the time. So what I mean that when I say that every human has an internal hostility to God is more this idea that we just don't really want to be confronted with the truth of God. We, we enjoy going our own way. We sort of, you know, in our own eyes, our plans and purposes are right to us. And what we don't realize is we tend to be desires to our own, uh, we tend to be slaves to our own desires. And we don't understand what true flourishing, true freedom, true fulfillment looks like. And so that's what I mean about this internal hostility. It's not that people are out there, you know, screaming uh, curse words at God. I mean, mostly it's sort of this, like, I'm going to do my own thing. I think I'm right in my own eyes. It's, I sort of look at it like this. It's like if you have a falling out with someone, and whenever that person is around you, you kind of have a hard time acknowledging their presence. And you might not even be doing it on purpose, but you just can't really acknowledge that person you have conflict with. You don't really interact with them. And we do that with God. Before we come to Christ, we're hostile toward God's in our mind. Even if we're not consciously aware of it, we avoid him. We distract ourselves from thinking about him. We kind of just keep going our own way. And the only way peace with God will come is by God dealing head on with our sin and our rebellion. And that's what God was doing through the birth of Jesus, the one called the Prince of Peace that was to come. Paul describes, this is so beautiful to me, we ask the question, how does God deal with his enemies? Well, Paul describes it in Romans 5 when we read this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still yet sinners, he died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we are reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? But I love this. How does God deal with his enemies? He doesn't crush them. He doesn't obliterate them. He dies for them. Because he loves them. To me, this is the, this is the compelling vision of the Christian life, is that if somebody hates you, you love them. Because that's what God our Father did for us. That while we were his enemy, he died for us. He could have had all the right to simply obliterate us. He could have snuffed us out of existence and said, if you don't acknowledge me, then you don't have to exist anymore. I can end your life. I am your creator. But he said, he said I love you. As you shake your fist in rebellion, I love you. I'm going to die for you. Isaiah 53 gives us a fuller picture of this child that is to be born, this son that is to be given, by describing in detail what it is that this child will do for sinful humanity. It says, he was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So you can see here again this, this line of peace, right? The punishment that brought us peace was on him. So God puts an end to hostility between, between sinful humanity and himself at the cross when Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that he, in him we could be made right with God. And the Apostle John says, if we claim to have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves. We're not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. God has no desire to, it says in Ezekiel 33, 11, that God takes no delight in the death of a wicked man. 
God does not delight in the destruction or the death of those who are wicked. He is grieved over that because his desire is to love his people, to call all mankind into relationship with himself so that we'd be his children once again. And it's amazing to see just the practical side of it when sin is confessed and the burden, the weight of that sin and that shame and that guilt is lifted. You know, for some people, they go, man, there's a, like a physical feeling of weight being lifted off me when I confess sin. For others, it might be just a new sense of freedom from shame and guilt. And for other people, they go, you know what? I just understand my purpose in life more. I used to just live chasing what I thought would make me happy, but now I've got a purpose and a direction. I'm understanding my eyes are being opened to what it is to follow God in the fullness of life, which is to serve others, to love others, to love God and receive from him all that I need to do his work. And they go, this is the fulfilled life. This is what it is to be really living. And that's how Jesus brings peace between God and man. That's where that peace in our hearts is, is coming from. It's knowing our sins are removed. We understand what it is to live the fulfilled life and we're washed clean. And so that major act of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was to reconcile us to God, to bring peace between us and God. However, followers of Jesus also need to realize that when we have peace with God, we also receive that supernatural peace that transcends life circumstances. We talked about this a little bit with Mighty God, but it's worth mentioning again that our peace, once we are children of God, no longer depends on whether everything is going right or not. The peace that comes from heaven protects us in the difficulties and the trials of life. The Apostle Paul says, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Now, the Prince of Peace doesn't promise us perfection in this life. He doesn't promise us safety or comfort. But what he does promise is a deep peace through all of it, a supernatural peace. And Jesus talked about this kind of peace with his disciples. He promised them that that even in this world that would be hostile to them, that they would still experience peace because of his presence within them. Jesus told the disciples, you need to be ready for persecution and hatred. He told them plainly that the world wouldn't take kindly to, to people who followed him. He said, in this world you will have trouble. John 16, But he also told them, I have said these things to you so that in me you might have peace. And I think this, again, is that supernatural peace because we would go, well, if I'm having trouble, then how would I have peace? Jesus says, hey, you're going to have trouble, but you'll have peace because I am with you. And earlier he told his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And so that is what the Prince of Peace offers his followers. And it isn't this fluffy kind of peace or a peace that only comes when times are good but disappears when things are going wrong. It's this peace that steadies us in the storms of life. It's this peace that sustains us, the kind of peace that you long to have when everything goes out of control or circumstances take a turn for the worse. And this is the kind of peace that Christians have always known in hard times. It's that kind of peace that they've celebrated in their lives and sung about in the songs. One of my favorite books this year is actually a, a collection of sermons from the persecuted uh, church in China. And I am blown away by the steadiness of peace that even when they're being beaten and arrested and their families are being taken away, they have this internal peace because Jesus is with them. There is no other explanation because their families are gone or they're being taken into jail and they go, but I, I'm at peace. Why is that? Well, because Jesus is with me. You can't explain it. Paul says you can't explain this peace. It's supernatural. It comes from heaven to guard our hearts and minds. And so Jesus, the Prince of Peace, 
He makes us right with God. He brings us into relationship with God. He guards our hearts and minds with his peace, a peace that exceeds our understanding because we're intimately familiar with this peace and with the Prince of Peace himself, then we are to be peacemakers, right? Our goal as we follow Jesus, as we are sons of the Most High God, we, we want to be like Jesus as much as we can, be led by the Spirit into Christ-likeness. And one of those areas is this place of peace. So again, let's look at Matthew 5, 9 again. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What Jesus is saying here is that all people who are children of God will be peacemakers. And because we are made children of God through faith in Jesus, it says in John 1.12, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Galatians 3.26 says, for in Christ we are all sons of God through faith. And so scripture is clear that we become sons of God, daughters of God, by trusting in Christ for our forgiveness and hope. And so what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 9 here is that people who have become the, the children of God will have the character of their heavenly father. And scripture tells us that our heavenly father is a God of peace. It says it in Romans 16, 1 Thessalonians 5, and Hebrews 13, that our father, our God, is a God of peace. And if we are his children, we are to be like our father. We are to be peacemakers. And because God our Father is a God of peace and because Jesus our Savior is the Prince of Peace, we are peacemakers. This means we need to be known as people of peace, both in our church family but also in the, in the world that we interact with and how we serve the world around us. Because the head of the church is Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the first place we should see peace is within the church, within the body of Christ. In this particular church but even across denominations. Colossians 3 says this, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. The Prince of Peace is the head of the church, and therefore the church is to be a place of peace. It's not supposed to be a place of conflict or petty politics or broken relationships or any other kinds of rivalry or infighting. I mean, I just go back to this Colossians passage and I go, make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Clothe yourselves with love. Let the peace rule of Christ rule in your hearts. And so, and Paul instructs in the Romans, live in harmony with each other. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. So, so not only is the church supposed to be a place of peace, because if the Prince of Peace is the head of the church, then certainly the church should be a place of peace. Again, let's go deeper than, than our human understanding of peace and go to this idea of shalom peace. It's to be, be a place of flourishing where all people are welcomed, where, where we comfort one another. So we have peace within the church, but then we also live in this world, and we see that the role of Christians is to be peacemakers in a chaotic, unjust, and violent world. We advance the kingdom of God in this domain of darkness because we are citizens of that kingdom, and the kingdom of God is a place of shalom peace. The kingdom of God is a place where there is no violence, persecution, oppression, injustice, sickness, a place where humans flourish and do well. Now the primary way that we bring peace to the world is through that ministry of reconciliation. We proclaim that Jesus reconciles rebellious humanity to God 
And God has given the church, the Apostle Paul says, this ministry of reconciliation. Paul says, God gave us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. And so that's our primary task, is this ministry of reconciliation, to say, God no longer holds your sin against you, he died for you. He loves you. Would you come back to him? Yet there is this sense sometimes in that we, we care so much about people's spiritual lives that we forget that they're physical as well. And I'm all about a holistic gospel. The good news is good news for body, soul, mind, and spirit. And so we need to also be concerned with putting right what is wrong in every way, not just in a spiritual sense. So where there's injustice... We stand for the downtrodden. Where there is violence, we bring healing and care to the victims of violence. Where there's chaos and destruction, we help rebuild, all while proclaiming the message of reconciliation. And I want us to kind of note this distinction, that we are to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. To bring about shalom peace, we often need to get involved on behalf of other people. We need to speak up to oppressors and stand against violence. We need to speak out against violence and injustice and oppression. We need to help build our communities to be places of human flourishing. That's the task of the Christian. It goes all the way back to Jeremiah when they're led into captivity into Babylon, this pagan city who has sacked Jerusalem and killed the Jewish people. And the Lord says, work for the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've called you. Can you imagine being a Jewish person and hearing that? And you're going, but these people are pagans. Do you know the weird stuff they do? They worship all sorts of terrible gods. They destroyed Jerusalem. They killed our people. And God says, work for the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've called you. And that message continues to us. Work for the peace and prosperity of Cochrane. And I think that there, we can make a distinction, and, and I don't want to be too broad with this, but I think we can make a distinction between peacemakers and peacekeepers. So it's peacemakers are those who strive to create peace. They, they see the places where there is things at odds, or, or they see injustice, and they see oppression, and they say, this isn't right. We need to fix this. Justice must come. Justice must be done. Peacekeepers, on the other hand, tend to strive to keep peace at all costs. Right? They're kind of like, don't make waves. Sure, things aren't great over there, but you know, let's just all try and get along. And so in some ways, peacekeepers and peacemakers can actually be considered opposites of one another. They tend to clash. I'll give you an example. Let's go to the white churches down in the southern states in the 1950s and the 1960s who were complicit in the segregation laws that kept black and white people separated in the schools and in the churches and in the restaurants. There were a lot of Christians who were peacekeepers they said, well, nothing is that wrong. I mean, they've got their own places to go, and we've got our own places to go. Let's not make waves. Everything's fine. But there's injustice all around them. And being a peacekeeper in that environment was not doing what God has called us to do, which is to be peacemakers, which is to see injustice and say, no, that's not right. We have a God of justice who hates injustice. We've got to make this right. But the peacekeepers, you know, that, that sense of let's not cause any conflict, they just wanted to maintain things without any discord or change. They wanted to keep peace as it was, but it was really racism disguised as peace. And civil rights activists in that era sometimes had to disturb the false peace in order to make room for real peace. This idea of shalom, this idea of everyone flourishing, this idea of everyone working together as brothers and sisters. And so I always look at Martin Luther King Jr. as a peacemaker, 
But to be a peacemaker, he had to stand up against this corrupt and unjust system. He promoted nonviolent demonstration. He spoke from scripture to point out the sins of the government and even the sins of the white church and Christians. He was, if you want to know what a prophet sounds like, Martin Luther King Jr. is often what a prophet would sound like. He was making peace where injustice prevented shalom peace from being a reality. And so what I want to do today, uh, just as we close here, is I want to play a video from his famous I Have a Dream speech. It's not going to be the whole thing. It's like 17 minutes. So I clipped it down to just a a, a few short minutes. But as you watch this video, I want you to kind of grasp what it looks like to be a peacemaker, what it looks like to be a believer and to say, you know what, it's not... There's injustice, and our God is a God of justice. And so where there is injustice, we must speak for justice. Where there is oppression, we must speak for those who are oppressed. That is a part of the gospel message. It's a part of the good news. It's not separate from it. It's part of it. So let's just watch this, and then I'll close the sermon. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. One day, this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children 
will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. That's what a prophet looks like. That's what a vision of shalom looks like. It's the words of a peacemaker changing a corrupt and oppressive system with nonviolent means. And as followers of the Prince of Peace, we must never be complicit in oppressive systems. We stand up for the downtrodden, the poor, the forgotten, and the victims of violence. We're to comfort them, provide for them, And if they cannot speak for themselves, we speak for them or we give them our platform and say, would you speak? Because it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. There's this weird thing that's happening in in the Christian world right now, and I don't know if you're aware of it, but there are those people who would say the gospel has nothing to do with justice. Have you heard this? If you ever hear it, you know it's not true. Good news is good news for body, soul, spirit, and mind. And that's a vision of shalom peace. That's what the Prince of Peace came to do. So here's a, a prayer of St. Francis that, uh, written in the 12th century that I, I think we can all pray, that I, I hope that we would all pray as, as we kind of go about our world. You know, in Canada, for a long time, I thought Canada was sort of like this place of like, everyone has the same stuff that I have, and it's becoming more apparent to me that there is still injustice in this land. And we can see it. And so the question is, what's our role in that? And I can't tell you what our role is, but I can say each one of us can kind of go to the Lord and say, what is my role when I start to see injustice, when I see oppression, when I see something that isn't right? What do you want me to do? And we're all going to be called to different places. But here's a prayer that I think we can pray. It's from St. Francis. He says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, let me give pardon. Where there is doubt, give me faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. And I think each day if you just say, Lord, this is my prayer. Wherever I go, let me bring light to the darkness. Let me bring peace to chaos. Let me bring hope to despair. Let me be an instrument of your peace. I think you would see a lot of change. I think that would ring out loudly. And so as we close the sermon today, I just have three questions for you to reflect on as we kind of went through all the areas of the Prince of Peace. So there's just three things. So number one, are you at peace with God? 
Have you experienced that freedom and the forgiveness that Jesus came to give to you? Number two, are you experiencing the supernatural peace of Christ which guards your heart and minds? Or is there something that's causing you worry or anxiety that you want to bring before Jesus in prayer, that you want to bring, you can pray with people up front here, you can pray by yourself, but maybe there's something going on in your life and you go, I need that peace. Or maybe you want to pray to receive that today. And number three, are you looking to be a peacemaker, both in the ministry of reconciliation, but also in the ministry of justice and setting things right? Are you looking to be a peacemaker in your family, in your workplace, in your community, around the world, or in your church? And what steps can you take to bring shalom peace, this idea of whole human thriving, to your sphere of influence? <clears throat> I want to kind of give you a... Cochrane Alliance Church actually does some really cool stuff in terms of, of working in Cochrane to bring shalom peace. So I want to give you one example. Uh, back in October, I think it was, and or no, it was back in September, we did a... We brought in donations for the Ukrainian refugee families. We have a lot of refugee families from Ukraine here, and, uh, and we put out a call for donations. And so if you want to put up the slide, um, together we donated $3,445 to the Ukrainian refugees. And so I just say thank you so much for your generosity in, in bringing... This is really part of what it is to bring shalom peace. It's saying, hey, there's people who are in need, and, and we want them to flourish and do well. So we're going to share what we have so they can experience flourishing and wholeness in some sense. And so thank you so much for that.